Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's really, really good to be here. Just turn to the person beside you and say, you look fantastic this morning. Great. Well, as I say, I always love coming here. I've been here a few times now, actually. Um, it's always nice when you get invited back somewhere. You must have thought it wasn't a complete disaster last time I was here. Um, and it is always fantastic to hear of all the stuff that you guys are doing in the community. I um, keep up our social media and the noise and Churches Together stuff. And, and you guys are, are real activists, aren't you? Well, two of you are anyway. That's encouraging. And, uh, but you seem to be a real activist. You seem to really want to go for it, really try and understand what God's kingdom is um, for every sphere of society. So that's really encouraging for me because I get to speak in so many churches. Um, so it's really nice when I come to church. I think, yeah, these guys are the real deal. And uh, so thank you so much uh, for having me here. We got very early this morning. Um, this is my PA, Ludovine. Um, Ludovine drove this morning while I was um, uh, in and out of consciousness. Um, so um, I'm very grateful for her doing that for us. Um, and just to say, we do have a little book stand at the back. Um, this is my brand new book called Honesty Over Silence. And I'm going to talk about a few themes from this. Um, and also, the DVD came out about three weeks ago, so I don't think we've hardly uh, had any of those to sell up until today. So you can check those out. And John very, very kindly asked me to mention that if you want to buy one and you don't have the money, the church will buy one for you as long as you pay them back <laughs> next week. Um, but we also got a card machine, so but please don't let that um, money stop you buying one if you haven't got money. Um, also, it's sometimes really nice. The sort of books I write are actually quite good to give someone who's going through a really tough time. So maybe you can think of someone who's going through a really tough time and give it to them. Now, back in the day, I used to do loads of youth work. I don't do much now. Well, any really. And, uh, and one of the things I used to do was the school assembly. Anyone remember the school assembly? Anyone here? Anyone remember it as being the most riveting, exciting, dynamic, amazing moment of their life? Are you a teacher? No, no, I just wondered. And, uh, and this one kid told me a story about a school assembly. He said he went into the school assembly, and at the front of the school um, was this table. And on the table, it had this um, basket of delicious-looking apples. The problem was there was a sign above the apples, and the sign said this, Take one apple only. God is watching. And so the kids were pretty terrified, to be honest. They'd go up to the table, they'd grab an apple, they'd have a good look around, and then they'd sit down. At the back, as all the kids went out the hall, there was another table. And on that table was some delicious-looking chocolate brownie. Mm. And some kid had written a sign that put above the chocolate brownie, and the sign said this, Take as much brownie as you want, God's watching the apples. And you know, so often we have communicated, uh, God, that's just a little bit mean. He's just into a load of rules and wants to spoil everything. Instead of a God that really understands where we're at and some of the pain and the anxiety and the stuff that we go through. I often say to people, um, life for me is a bit like a game of Tetris. Who remembers Tetris? Do you remember Tetris? That these blocks come from the sky and they come pretty quick. And the whole idea is you've got to rotate them in order to get a straight line. But when the straight line happens, what happens? The line disappears and more blocks. They keep coming. And they go faster and faster. And then eventually you're like, do you know what? I can't do this anymore. Game over. 
And, you know, sometimes, I don't know what it is, isn't it? Things always seem to go wrong at once. Why is that? Why do those blocks have to keep coming at such a speed? Um, my life, I think, is a little bit like this next slide. I don't know if anyone can relate to this slide. Um, anyone can relate to that? Put your hand up if you can relate to that. Please let me not be the only person who can relate to that. Um, I have my plan. It's all cool. And then I have the reality of where life actually turns out. I want to look today um, just briefly at one of my favorite stories in the Bible, um, Elijah. Um, I love the story of Elijah because I think it's a little bit like a Hollywood film. Um, It has some really, really crazy characters in it. Because Elijah grew up in a time where the evil occult king and queen, um, Ahab and Jezebel, um, they basically worshipped this god called Baal. Um, Baal was known to be in charge of the weather. In that culture, the way they made their living is through agriculture. And so basically, they wanted to keep Baal happy. So the way they kept Baal happy is they used to whip themselves. They used to sacrifice children. They used to fight kids into the blazing furnace. It was one of the most awful occult practices probably that history has ever known. And then, as well as Ahab and Jezebel, you've got Obadiah, 007, double agent. He's in the temple grounds. He's trying to smuggle uh, prophets of God to keep them safe. And then I think Elijah comes to that point where he starts to realize that he is the answer to his own prayers. Have you ever done that? God, change that person. God, change the situation. Well, I'm going to call you to do that. Oh, dear. And so what happens is he confronts Ahab and Jezebel. He says to them, there'll be no rain nor dew until I say so. Not even until God says so. This is 1 Kings 17. Until I say so. Who's in charge of the weather? Baal. So this was a pretty big um, insult to Ahab and Jezebel. At that point, Elijah seems to have to leg it to a place called the Cherith Ravine. Now, the Cherif Ravine, when I used to study it in Sunday school, I imagined it as this really cute little stream. You know, Elijah's there sunbathing. Um, ravens bring him food every day. Um, Burger King, um, really nice meat. The reality is it was 120 degrees. The stream wasn't even clear. It was a, it was a Cherif Ravine, so it was murky. It was dusty. Ravens are known as unclean birds. Elijah was there for a year without human company. Yet, he still saw God provide. Who knows that we live in a paradox of believing that God heals, God does amazing things, but life is flipping tough at the same time. Who knows that? We live in that context, don't we? We live in that paradox a lot of the time. And then, um, basically, God says to Elijah, it's time to go to Zenopath. And he thinks, great, Zenopath, 80 miles away. Jezebel's hometown, full of Baal worshippers. No human company for a year. He arrives at Zenopath and God says, that widow over there, she's collecting sticks for her last meal. You think, come on, God, give me a break. Seriously, is is there anyone else I can talk to? But he goes and, uh, you know, again, another incredible miracle happens where um, he prays and, and the jar doesn't run dry. And then what happens after that? Sun dies. Whose fault is it? It's Elijah's. The woman blames Elijah. And you notice Elijah doesn't go really defensive and go, hang on a minute, love. (laughs) Before I came, you had no food or anything. It's not my fault. He lays on the body and he cries out for God to do something. The sun comes back to life. A high point. And then comes the climax of the story. It's Carmel. 
all the prophets of Baal are there, all Elijah's there on his own. And you know what? Um, he thinks this is going to be it. And, you, you know, I'm not going to go into the story in detail, but basically they test God, two sacrifices. Um, they say to Baal, set fire to that one. Uh, nothing happens, even though the prophets of Baal start whipping themselves and doing all this crazy stuff they do. And then the fire of God comes, and many of the prophets of Baal were killed and destroyed. At that point, I think Elijah must have thought, this is it. Book tour. Festival tour. DVDs are going to come out. This is my moment. But the reality is... Life didn't work out the way Elijah thought it was going to. Just like life doesn't always work out the way we think we want it to. You know what? People do get ill. Redundancies are made. Test results do come back with the most terrifying news. Marriages do break down. Our kids do go off the rails sometimes. So what was Elijah's reaction Well, this is it. 1 Kings 19, verse 1 to 5. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. May the gods deal with me ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I will not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he was there, he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a boom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he may die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I know better than my ancestors. Elijah comes to such a painful place. He doesn't want to live anymore. You know, my story, some of you may know, I'm... um, I guess I've been described by a few people as a bit of an activist. Um, like to make things happen. I ran quite a large charity. And, uh, but I was one of those typical people that you often get in the church, actually. Is you those sort of people that um, you put your phone on charge for 10 minutes. Uh, and then you unplug it. And you can use it, right? It's only 10%. But the phone is good on 10% as it is on 100%. It can still do all the same stuff. It just doesn't last very long. And so what happens is you put it on charge again, and then you burn out, and then you put it on charge again, and then you burn out, and then this cycle goes round and round and round. But, you know, I always realised that my showreel was looking pretty good. My Facebook page and my Twitter page look pretty impressive because the charity I was running, we used to get so much attention from the outside. We had, I've met so many prime ministers, um, normally the week before an election, to be fair, but there you go. Um, You know, I have people, politicians, and I'm not going to name drop, one has blonde hair and he doesn't comb it very often. But, you know, um, and I've got to know him over the years. And, uh, you know, I remember um, uh, we had uh, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. They came down twice in a year. Um, here they are sitting next to my wife. Um, then they're on our bus. you see the next photo. Uh, and then this photo is of me and Catherine um, standing outside our church in London. And what you can't see in that photograph Um, is about 150, probably more than the people here this morning, photographers. Literally, like, going, like, flashing a light. It was like strobe lightning. It was the most crazy thing. I'm turning to her in this picture going, wow, I don't know how you do this. This would do my head in. I'm having this every day. And uh, she doesn't particularly like it either, you know. And, uh, but when I went home that night, the showreel looked fantastic. 
because it was all over the net. In fact, our, our, our website crashed. There were so many people looking at it. I was on the 6 o'clock news. I was in Go magazine and Hello magazine and OK magazine and every national newspaper. And everyone's like, wow, Patrick. So you can't tell from the photo. In that photograph, I'm about as anxious as I've ever been. Absolutely nothing to do with the royals coming. Couldn't care less, to be honest. Not in a disrespectful way, but that, you know what I mean? It wasn't anything to do with that. It's because I was waiting for a serious operation. It was because I was just struggling with life because the blocks were coming too flipping fast and I didn't know what to do. And I was in that place where I started to feel really, really, really down, really depressed. And I started to feel a bit like Elijah. God, I'm not sure I want to be here anymore. I'm not sure I could do it. Sometimes, like, in the church, I, I, I mean, I sort of like to challenge theology anyway, but some of our theology around some of this stuff is pretty poor. And... Um, and, you know, I've heard loads of crazy stuff. If you're in a situation where you're so low that you're contemplating uh, completing a suicide, that isn't a selfish thing to do. That's actually a really lonely, desperate, painful place to be in. And, uh, and the fascinating thing was for me is I just came to a point where I went, you know, God, I'm fed up. I'm bored of the show. I'm bored of pretending everything's okay. I am desperate for something more real, more authentic. And uh, when I get in that sort of situation, I tend to write. And, uh, and so I wrote the book, Honesty Over Silence. And, uh, and uh, you're going to think it's, I'm backslidden by the time you've read it. Um, but the thing is, I read the Psalms. And the Psalms are fascinating because the Psalms are, 40% of the Psalms are laments. Are David crying out to God, I just don't get it. What is going on? And, uh, and, you know, when you're in that low place, sometimes Christians, and particularly when you're struggling with anxiety, um, we say some really crazy things. You know, I remember I was told, well, is there a secret sin in your life? I was trying to think of sins in my life. In fact, I repented of every sin in my life and I made a few up just to be sure. You know, um, I had major surgery on my legs and uh, I got prayed for by so many people. I believe that God heals. I believe like Elijah, you live in the paradox or sometimes I get it and sometimes I don't get it. I don't understand why. I've got no reason to understand why. And, uh, and I remember being reasonably well known in the Christian world is every festival I speak at, you know, they'd go, I've arranged for a one-on-one with the guy from Bethel round the back after the meeting for you. I'm like, I don't want to go around the back with some bloke from Bethel at the end of the meeting, do you know what I mean? And uh, I'm like, what's going on? i got people blowing in my face. I'm like, mate, if you blow in my face again, I'm going to knock you out, do you get me? And, uh, and all these things kept going on and on. And in the end, my self-esteem was like, I think God's forgotten me. He doesn't like me anymore. So what I did when I was writing Honesty Over Silence, instead of just me talking to um, uh, my story is uh, I talk to some of my friends as well. So every chapter, and they're on the DVD as well, actually, um, is, uh, there's three guest chapters. Um, the first one is Rachel Wright. Rachel is a beautiful human being, and uh, her son was born with a life-limiting condition. Um, she has to turn him every two hours. He has 20 injections a day. I said to Rachel, how do you keep going? And she said, um, you know, the only way I keep going is because of my faith. It's the only thing that keeps me going. She goes, sometimes, though, I've got to admit, in church I find it hard because you often talk about seasons. Um, next season is my son dies. Uh, I want to stay in this season as long as I can. You know, sometimes I think we have to redefine what a miracle is because for the way she treats her kids and the way she lives her life is a miracle. Um, next guy, um, John Sutherland, actually I got a text from him 10 minutes ago. Um, he's one of my best friends. 
Um, he was a borough commander. He had 1,500 police officers work towards him. And, uh, and about six years ago now, I think it was, there's a phone call. Um, John's down A&E. And I'm like, oh, my days. He's been shot. He's been stabbed. And when I got there, um, well, I didn't get there. When I saw him a couple of days afterwards, he was like, the blocks came too fast, Patrick. He had a complete breakdown, anxiety breakdown. And then I went round there because I sort of worked out with people who are going through a tough time. Is some of them don't want to be preached at um, or um, told things. They just don't want to be fixed even. They just want someone to love them and be there for them. And uh, so that's what I tried to do. And, and he used to say to me, you know, Patrick, the whole man up thing hasn't worked out for me, has it? Man up, not telling anyone what's going inside my head has not worked out for me. And then the next beautiful couple, um, again, they messaged me yesterday, Alan and Jackie. And uh, they did a chapter in the book, and it's a very tender chapter because it talks about their 16-year-old son who completed a suicide. And I said to them, why? Why do you want to tell people about this? They were like, listen, 6,500 people complete a suicide every single year. 6,500, why are we not talking about this? I was on the BBC, and they said, um, you know, if 6,500 people got eaten by bears every year, we'd do something about it, right? We've got to have the conversation. We've got to be more honest. Um, Every single day on our railways, every single day, this happens. And, you know, Elijah is in this place. He's in this place where he thinks he's going completely mad. He's anxious, he's depressed, and he just wants to finish it. And when I was uh, studying for my book, Honesty Over Silence, um, writing books for me takes forever because I, I read all the theologians and then I read all the psychologists and then I think about storytelling and all this sort of stuff that I like to think about in terms of communication. And it got to the chapter on anxiety and, uh, and it, all the books I read were quite technical. Do you know what I mean? The fight or flight um, and all those sort of things. And in the end, I thought, this ain't really doing it for me. And uh, so I started reading blogs uh, by normal people, like you and me, hopefully. And, uh, and I came up with a bit of a list of what I thought anxiety is. See if you can check this out. Anxiety is your brain not being able to turn off. It's the unanswered text message that kills us inside, especially WhatsApp, because you can tell it's been read, right? It believes every negative scenario that you come up with. It's the inaccurate conclusions drawn as your mind takes off and you have no choice to follow its lead. It's apologising for things that don't require you to say sorry. It's self-doubt and a lack of confidence. It's trying to fix something that isn't a problem. It's the fear of failure and striving for perfection and beating yourself up when you don't get there. It tells you you're wrong, they don't like you. It's constantly asking the what-if questions. Now, the interesting thing about writing that was um, I I sort of wanted to come up with a definition. Now, I get there's loads of different anxiety disorders, loads of different stuff that I could have written about there, but um, I I didn't really have one I was really pleased with. Then I came across this, and I thought, oh, my goodness, that's me. More than anything else, anxiety is caring. It's never wanting to hurt someone's feelings. It's never wanting to do something wrong. More than anything, it's the want and the need to be accepted and like, so you try too hard sometimes. We try too hard sometimes. There are often people that struggle with anxiety in the church. We've just made you feel guilty. In reality, people that struggle with anxiety are normally beautiful, sensitive people. Um, because your strengths are always your weakness. You know that. Um, and you have incredible empathy for people. And you reach out to people in such a beautiful way. 
And uh, I don't know if you've seen these cartoons before. Um, in about 20 minutes, half an hour, we'll be having some tea, maybe. We can have some anxiety. Um, what if nobody likes me? What if I taste weird? What if I'm too cold? What if I'm too hot? What if I'm just right and I can never live up to it again? Quite like that. Um, the pearls of overthinking. What if people don't like me? I've made a mistake. Am I good enough? Is everyone staring at me? I'm doing this wrong. Am I doing the right job? Another thing that really helped me was um, I, uh, when I was studying the book, uh, there's a chapter on stigma. Uh, I came across this um, book called uh, On Clinical Depression, The Curse of the Strong by a psychiatrist. And he said nine times out of ten, he can tell the personal characteristics of someone that's suffering from depression. It's really interesting. Moral strength, reliability, diligence, strong conscience, a strong sense of responsibility, a tendency to focus on the needs of others before one's own, sensitivity, vulnerable to criticism, self-esteem dependent on the evaluation of others. People that struggle with this, Oliver Cromwell, Abraham Lincoln, Vincent van Gogh, Winston Churchill, Mother Teresa. In other words, not weak people, people that have just been strong for too long. That's what it often is. Elijah came to a place of real brokenness. He was really broken before God. These verses out of Matthew 29 verse 30 mean so much to me. It says this, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and we'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So some people, um, when I was going through my tough time, I came across this image of Kintsugi. Now, I don't know if you guys know this. Um, basically, if you break a pot, what you do is um, we probably, um, well, we probably, if you're honest, disregard it, right? Um, but what we tend to do sometimes is mend it with superglue. And the whole idea of superglue is you hide the cracks. You pretend it's all okay. So what they do in Japan, instead of hiding the cracks, they make a feature of the cracks. Arguably, the object becomes more beautiful than it was before. It certainly becomes more unique. You will not find a pot like that on planet Earth anymore. It's unique, like you're unique, like you're special. That beauty comes from brokenness. Our scars are not things to be ashamed of. Our scars who make us who we are. I want to show you a little video now. This is just 90 seconds, so it's not too taxing. But this is me and my friend Hannah uh, talking about Kintsugi. It's the audio lead of you, is it? In... All right, don't worry, forget it. I can't, can't take it any longer. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing is, um, when we did this whole Kintsugi thing, there was this lovely lady called Catherine, who's not a Christian at the moment, and uh, she's a lovely, lovely person. Um, and uh, she's an acoustic artist, and uh, she came out of our house with all these um, necklaces. Um, every single one is bespoke. Every single one is individually made. And uh, she said, I've just made you a load of these. And uh, just to, um, you know, have it your things that you speak at. And uh, she said, the scars of our lives are not to be hidden, for they make us who we are. 
And uh, so if you want one of those, buy one for a friend that's going through a tough time there. Um, she came around last night because we get we sell out of these as quickly as we can get them made um, with loads, actually. Some of the most beautiful ones I think she's ever done. So you can check that out. So three things I want to leave you with in terms of how God dealt with Elijah. Uh, number one is God dealt with Elijah with extreme compassion. Have you noticed that um, he didn't go up to Elijah and go, Elijah, come on, mate, cheer up a little bit. Remember Zenopath with the widow? That wasn't too bad. And the kid, you know, came back to life. It's pretty good, isn't it? Elijah didn't need a pep talk. He didn't need the whole remember the good old days talk. He needed compassion. And you know, what happened was, is that God sent an angel to care for him tenderly, providing him with food, so strength for the journey. He said, Elijah, rest, sleep. You know, Mike Iaconelli says this, most of us don't come home at night staggering drunk. Instead, we come home staggering, tired, worn out, exhausted and drained because we live too fast. When I was going through a tough time, my counsellor said, have you ever heard of the term self-compassion? I hated that term. I'm an activist. I don't want to think about myself. I want to go and change the world. And, uh, and, uh, and I think she said to me, um, I think you've misunderstood what self-compassion is all about. You see, self-compassion and self-indulgence are two very different things. Self-compassion, often we think it's the extra glass of wine at the end of the night to take the edge off or that food that will make us feel guilty in the long run anyway. Um, self-compassion is actually showing kindness to yourself. So self-compassion is this. Self-compassion is talking to yourself the way that you would talk to your best friend. So if one of you was my friend, hopefully someone here is my friend, and you came up to me and went, oh my goodness, those people in um, Bristol, they are doing my head in that church. I'm always whinging, always complaining. I'm tired. The kids are doing me in. I've been ill for ages. I don't seem to be able to get better. I have relapse after relapse. I don't turn around to you and go, come on, you haven't got it that bad. Think of all the people that have got it worse than you. Cheer yourself up a little bit. It's a good gig. It's all right. I wouldn't dream of saying that to one of my friends. Guess who I say that to every single day? Myself. I am my biggest critic. And then sometimes someone will come and say something which will reinforce my negative view of myself. Particularly Christians often come up to me at the end of meetings and go, I've got something to tell you in love. When a Christian says that to you, you know what you need to do? Run. Because <laughs> they're going to destroy you. And, uh, and, uh, and, but when I go back, and I'll be laying in bed tonight after my sort of four-hour drive back to where I uh, live, what's the one thing I'm going to be thinking about? All the nice people or that one negative comment, which is going to go loop on my head. Self-compassion. Compassion means to suffer with. It's to be conscious of another's distress and have the desire to alleviate that pain. A good friend sent me this message. Note to self, the plan is this. You do what you can, when you can, however you can, with, with whatever you've got. And if you can't, you can't. You rest until you can again. You give yourself kindness so your pockets are full and you can reach in and pull out a fistful to offer folks you meet along the way. Self-compassion isn't about taking an easy option. It's about offering ourselves kindness. It's about letting go of the inner critical voice, that inner voice that's constantly beating yourself up every single day. And some of us, you know what? That's in our heads most days of the week, isn't it? 
constantly chattering. So the second key thing about um, how we can maybe get a bit of freedom from this stuff, I've put this, is get curious about your thoughts. In other words, um, think about what you're thinking about. Now, there's a psychologist who, you know, is one of the key psychologists, um, Carl Jung, who basically said, whatever you resist persists. Now, the challenge with this is often when this is taught in the church, we talk about a verse in Corinthians, taking captive every thought, if you heard this. And sometimes I've heard this preach in a way that that verse means every time a thought that is negative comes into your head, you need to bash it in the name of Jesus. And, uh, and what I find is people just get more and more stressed because whatever you resist persists. Is unfortunately, you can't stop negative thoughts coming into your head. If I said to you now, as a little bit of an experiment, I don't want anyone in this room to think of chocolate. Dairy milk, flake, Mars bar, Twix. Some of you are really struggling. Some of you are going, I'm not thinking of it, I'm not thinking of it, I'm not thinking. Whatever you resist persists. You can't do it. Our brain isn't wired that way. So my mate says this, and I think this is really true. If you can imagine your thoughts as trains, I go into London quite a lot. So I'm on the underground. You know what? If you stand on the underground, the train's going to come every two minutes. And sometimes thoughts are a little bit like that. They're going to come, but, you know, I have a choice whether I'm going to get on that train or not. And actually taking captive every thought is going, I'm not going to entertain that one. I'm going to choose to step off of the train. I'm going to choose to let the train go. And sometimes something's really helpful is actually um, labelling the trains as they come. Here's my, I'm going to die a cancer train. I'm going to let it go. Here's my kids, are never going to love me train. This is my anxiety will last forever train. Don't get on the train. We've got to learn. The key is this. If you don't remember anything else I've said today, remember this. Don't believe everything you think. Don't believe it. Doubt. Question, debate. How many preachers do you hear talk like this? <laughs> Have doubts. It's good for you. Question, seriously, get sceptical. See, struggling doesn't mean you failed. It means you're human. Your thoughts are not your friend. Your mind isn't always your friend. And actually part of taking captive is actually saying, let's get an alternative voice a voice of love and a voice of compassion, the voice, then let's listen to that voice, which is totally different. Who can relate to this next slide? Positive, 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 positive. Negative, it's true, I'm a failure. Elijah's head was in turmoil. And one of the reasons why Elijah's head's in turmoil, and the reason why a lot of us are in turmoil, is Elijah has believed a massive, massive lie. And the lie is this, that he was completely alone. He says here, 1 Kings 19, God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? To which the prophet replies, I've been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. He has 7,000. There were seven. Do you know how many other prophets of, Bar were, uh, prophets of God were left? 7,000. There were 7,000 others who were all hidden in caves. You see, the problem is, in our today's society, even though we're the most connected we've ever been, we're also the most lonely we've ever been. Brené Brown says we are the most medicated, addicted, obese cohort in the whole of history. Guess what? Not talking about this stuff isn't working out very well for us. Loneliness is a killer. The facts are staggering. 
Being acutely lonely is as stressful as being punched in the face by a stranger and massively increases your risk of depression. The effect of loneliness is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Three quarters of GPs see between one and five lonely people a day. It's incredible. You know, um, so most of you know that I, I ran this big charity called XLP for 22 years. Um, and uh, when I left it, it was sort of like 80 staff or whatever, you know, it was big. Um, or 75 staff and it was two million pounds or whatever. And uh, when it got to 21, I felt God say, it's time to let it go. And I was like, oh, no, you don't understand. I'm a founder. We don't let go. And, uh, but God was breaking my heart for something else. And he said, no, you've got to give it all up. And I was like, I'm not sure I want to give it all up. And, uh, but then I started looking into this whole area around emotional mental health. And me and my wife, we started talking about working together, which is a little bit brave for us because we've never worked together. And then we started to have a dream. And you know they say that vision is the art of seeing the invisible that produces passion, right? I've often said to people, Martin Luther King, and Jim Willis said this originally, he said, Martin Luther King never stood up in Washington in front of 250,000 people without Facebook or Twitter and go, I've got a complaint to make. He said, I've got a dream. I've got a dream of justice and equality. So we've got a bit of a dream. And we've got a dream that we wanted to start a charity where a world where mental and emotional health is understood and accepted with safe and supportive communities for everyone to grow and flourish. Just a small dream, right? But you know what I've discovered, having um, worked in this area for many, many years, is when people feel safe and they feel supportive, they can do so much. They can do so much. So we were a little bit burnt out, to be honest, and uh, we thought we don't just want to start another charity. And I really felt God say, don't start a charity, start a movement. And that sounded a bit cheesy. So I studied movements. I started looking at different movements around the UK. Um, I, I looked at Parkrun. Anyone do Parkrun here? You know Parkrun? Wow, well done. Um, rock Choir. Anyone heard of Rock Choir? Anyone like these choirs that have started literally all over the UK? And uh, Weight Watchers. No, let's not do that one. Um, Weight Watchers, Slimming World, Alcoholics Anonymous, all these things, they start in communities at the grassroots. And what they have in common is people really feel that they belong, but they don't have to fit in. Because there's a big difference between belonging and fitting in. And sometimes in the church we confuse those things. And they don't feel judged, but they feel part of something. And uh, so what we decided to do, my wife wrote, similar to the AA course, a basically a 12-week course on emotional and mental health. We called it the Kintsugi um, uh, Hope Wellbeing Groups. And, uh, and we have a home group. I don't know if you have home groups or life groups or connect groups. So we, I had one of those in my house. And, uh, and I said to them, guys, why don't we try running one of these 12-week courses and my wife is incredibly clever. She wrote the whole course in learning styles because there's seven different learning styles we all learn in. Often what we do in church, we just use three or four of them. Um, so we said, let's run this in learning styles. Let's be creative and let's have discussion and let's have uh, videos and all sorts of stuff. It was incredible. So we went up to people in our community and we said, we're starting a Kintsugi Hope Wellbeing Group. And they're like, what? <laughs> and uh, Kintsugi, it's this um, whole thing about brokenness. And then, uh, when we got through it, they go, oh, the gold thing. Yeah, the gold thing. Um, yeah, I'll come. I'm broken. Um, my husband's just left me. Yeah, I'll come. Um, I've been struggling with anxiety. I haven't told anyone. Yeah, I'll come. Um, I've had a situation uh, where um, I've just experienced so much brokenness. And, uh, uh, but yeah, I want to be there. 
our life group trebled in size. And I'm sitting there on the first week because I suffered from anxiety. I was terrified. And uh, so I'm sitting there and uh, I'm sitting next to this guy who luckily I've known my whole life in church. And my wife did this thing, Diane did this thing. Go, Just turn to the person beside you and talk about a high point and a low point. So I thought, oh, great, brilliant. I'm with John. And so I went to John. And I'm like, yeah, let's tell me. And I learned more in five minutes than I did in the whole of 45 years of being in church. In five minutes. And I actually said to him, mate, I'm so sorry. We've been like this every single Sunday. You've been going through hell and back. And somehow we've created a culture where we don't talk about this. Can't be right, can it? And then we started to go through it. And, uh, and then we said, well, why don't we pilot it in different places? Just see if it takes off. And so we did it in 11 different places across the UK. We did some up north. Um, we did it in a homeless hostel um, with five guys who absolutely loved it. And I guess the whole thing is saying, you know what? We have to let go of the harmful notion that there are those in need and those able to help. We're all in need and we can all help in some way. And I'm praying like mad, God, we do need a new move of your spirit. But I'm telling you what now, if it's going to be some big warehouse in America somewhere with some amazing worship band, um, who some of them are session musicians, and some famous personality, and then God TV are going to come and sort of beam it around the world, and we're going to call that revival, I'm done. <laughs> but if it could be in coffee shops and in prisons and in schools and in pubs, and the Royal Legion down the road. If it could be in just with ordinary, broken, fragile, humble, vulnerable people who are just going to walk alongside and love people, then I'm up for it. I'm totally up for it. And so from two weeks ago, um, we took the decision to go live with this across the country. Um, and now um, we are literally training churches up across the UK to come on a two-day training thing to run a Kintsugi Hope Wellbeing Group in their community. And the thing I'm loving about it is people are being so creative. The deaf community got in touch with me going, just because we're deaf doesn't mean we don't have mental health challenges, but no one does anything for us. Um, someone in Soho um, got in touch working with women who are involved in prostitution. I would love to run this for them. Um, businesses have uh, contacted, schools have contacted, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this could be really amazing and beautiful and broken all at the same time. Because that's what Elijah needed to know. He needed to know he was with someone. I like to finish my talks by quoting the famous theologian, Winnie the Pooh. He says this, Don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Just walk beside me and be my friend. People start to heal when they start to feel heard. And... uh, And you know, what we really need, isn't it, is that we really need people to be more them, to be who they're made in the image of God. Um, Ludovine came up with this word. Ludovine's from France. You probably guessed by her name. And uh, she watched at me this word the other, uh, about six months ago. And the word was flawsome. And I looked it up in the dictionary because I thought she just made up a word. And, uh, And it's actually in the dictionary. You can Google it. It means an individual who embraces their flaws and knows they're awesome regardless. That's really cool, right? That's really cool. But you're flawsome and you're special. And some of you may be in that place where you're going, God, I just don't get it anymore. But you know what? Is that God takes the broken things of our lives and does something so, so, so beautiful. Oh, my goodness, my time's absolutely gone. I had this really cool video that I was going to attempt to show you, but... um 
Time has gone. Why don't we um, stand if you're able and let me pray. Is that okay? The worship guys come back. Okay, just for a couple of minutes, just um, let's just recenter on God, and uh, um, Father God, I just pray that you would come, Lord Jesus, and uh, I thank you for everyone here, Lord. I thank you that um, that you know everyone here incredibly well. You know their past, you know their future, you know their histories things they're really proud of, things they regret. God, you know them and you love them and you care for them. And God, I just pray, Lord Jesus, that they would just know your touch right now, that your spirit would come in a really lovely, gentle way, Jesus. Father God. Just, um, I just want to pray over people who um, who really struggle, a bit like me, with the inner critic. You're constantly beating yourself up. You're constantly, um, almost on a daily basis, you're constantly putting yourself down. Um, you show compassion to others, but you don't show it to yourself. And there'll be a few of us. But if that is you, can you just put your hand up really high so I can see you? So just put it up. Yeah, there's there's loads of us, right? Yeah. Um, it'd be really good to pray for you guys. It'd be really, really good to pray for you guys. Could you make your way to my right? Is that okay? Just come now. I know I, I'm I'm conscious of time, but am I okay? Come now, please, I want to pray for you guys, because I don't want you living with this constant thing every day. I want you to hear a different voice, and uh, we've done this over the last couple of weeks, and God's just met people so powerfully. Just come. If you, if you know you should be coming, just come, just come. Keep coming, guys, keep coming, keep coming right forward. If you just stand here and look at me, that would be great. I know that's a hideous thing to do, but... Um, if there's any more, just come to join these guys, Father. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm going to pray for you. Is there any, people, any ministry guys who can help me out? That would be great if you could come as well. Unless you're all up here, which always happens, doesn't it? So, you know. um, yeah. Good. Father God, um, pray for these guys. Um, just look at me for a second. I know that's that constant. I'm like, um, God knows exactly everything about challenging. And you're sort of saying, but Patrick, you don't know what I'm like. Um, God knows exactly everything about you, and you are so loved, and you are so cared for. And my prayer for you guys is that you would totally understand that today, and that you would allow his voice to be the most powerful voice that you hear. Um, And you know the train, you might not stop coming, but there'll be another voice tomorrow as well. And uh, that'll be that voice that you are a masterpiece. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's truth. That's truth. 
And I'll be honest, like, this is the most important thing of me coming here today. It's just, if one of you gets this, it's much more important than selling books or all the other stuff we do. If one of you gets this, that you know how loved you are. Sir, madam, you are so loved, so loved, so cared for, flawsome. So God, we pray you'd come. We pray you'd come, Lord Jesus. And as we worship now, we pray, God, that these guides would be a real fresh touch of your spirit. Lord God, that they would know your Father's heart, Lord God. And Lord, that you'd bring healing to their hearts and to their emotions and to the things that they've said over themselves that just aren't true. Father, we're sorry. And Lord, we come to you. In Jesus' name.